0: Welcome back everyone to another episode of Tell a Friend. I have to tell you, when I started this podcast, my mission statement was to entertain, to educate and to uplift. And this episode certainly meets all of those objectives. Because this past weekend I had the absolute honour of interviewing the remarkable Lord Simon Woolley. And in our long-ranging interview, we discussed everything from the coronavirus pandemic, his journey into politics, and what it's like to be a Lord. This is my interview with Lord Simon Willey. Simon Willey, thank you for joining us on Tell a Friend. I'll begin by introducing you to my listeners. You're the founder and director of Operation Black Vote. You're the advisory chair of the government's race disparity unit. And you're a crossbench peer, well, you have been since October 2019. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Now, could you begin by telling me the origin story of Operation Black Boat and your journey into politics?
1: Yes. Well, they, they are parallel journeys in, in many ways, uh, my entry into, into politics and the setting up of Operation Black Boat. I think, Brian, it comes from a sense of... Um, seeing deep racial injustice Uh, and then being at a moment where you say to yourself, I need to act. I need to act, I need to make a difference. Uh, I can, we can, and then that galvanizes you into a plan. I guess the catalyst for Operation Black occurred some 26, 27 years ago after the death of a young black man called Wayne Douglas, who died in the police station. And after an inquiry, nobody was held accountable. After that tragic death, there were meetings, and after one of those meetings, a I guess a street riot ensued in Brixton. People were frustrated, people were angry, but once again a a black young man went into police custody healthy and came out in a body bag. They tore the streets down. But post that riot, a lot of black leaders came together and said, look, it's no good us tearing down our own streets. You want to hold the police to account, the the politicians to account, then we need power. We need to be in a position where we're not asking for justice, but demanding it. Uh, Back then, there was a great sense of feeling that the black voters the black community were politically powerless things were done to us and we were powerless to push back it was my job as a young activist maybe not much older than yourself to do the research and just see actually our position of power because although we felt powerful we actually believed that we were in such large numbers in inner city areas, that we did have political power. We believe that. It was my job to prove it. So I spent eight to nine months doing the research, and then I called all the activists together, people like Lee Jasper, Rita Patel, Derek Hines, Ashok Viswanathan, and there was a bit of a eureka moment because what I was able to tell the group that the Black, Asian, and minority ethnic communities, we Called it back then and still do, political black, non-white. Far from being powerless, we were politically very powerful, and that was wholly focused on the maths. Even back then, in 1990, we launched in 1996, but I gave the information in '95. I was able to tell the group that if black and minority communities, if the black community registered to vote and voted. We, in effect, could decide. I think back then it was about 70 marginal seats. You you have to remember that back then in 95, 96, John Major had a majority of about 26 seats. Wafer, wafer thin. So we said, if we vote, we can decide who wins and who loses. It was a great moment. And that's when we started. And we just burst onto the stage. The black vote will decide. The black people, the, the community loved us because there's the game changer. For the first time, really, in British politics for a long time, that politically we were saying, we're not asking for justice. We'll decide who has the keys to Downing Street. And here are our set of demands. It was a very powerful moment.
0: Now, how receptive were all of the political parties when you started in 96?
1: It's a very good question because. We were shooting in the dark, we were, all, we were all activists, nobody was paid, but we just believed in what we did. You know, the politicians from all the political parties quickly recognised the potential power much quicker than our own communities did. Of course they would because their political life depended upon it. So very quickly we saw John Major, John Major was born in Brixton, and he quickly thought, I need the black vote, quick. And so he was saying to black Britain, I'm a Brixton boy. I'm a Brixton boy, born and bred in Brixton. Uh, mm-hmm. Tony Blair was saying, I've been an anti-racist fighting for Nelson Mandela from the get-go. Uh, same too with Paddy Ashdown for the Liberal Democrats. So they were, in many ways, superficially appealing to the to the black community. I, I do think, however, the Labour Party did make one significant promise gesture that changed Britain in many ways because Jack Straw rang our office during that election campaign and said could we host a press conference for him and at that press conference he said if black Britain vote for me I will ensure that the black community have a public inquiry into the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence and of course that was a big deal we've been campaigning for that for for many many years so for him to promise that deliver it and then change the legislation because of that inquiry that was something born out of black struggle
0: now how did you uh, actually begin the organization was it crowdfunding or was it just community activism
1: community activism i mean it was old school on the street placards leaflets i mean you know, morning, day, night, knocking on doors, holding meetings. It's very, very exciting. Uh, I do remember our first meeting, our first public meeting, it was in Croydon. Croydon was a marginal seat. I think it had a, the sitting MP had a majority of about 30 votes. So it was very, very narrow. And I remember a packed Croydon town hall and the TV cameras were there, and the, the hall was packed. Um, and it was the first time in public, in front of the cameras, that politicians from all the political parties it was a Hustings meeting were, were held accountable to black voices. And you saw, these, you saw all these candidates sweating under the lights. being told, "What are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? If you want our vote, we knew we had something. It was raw. We never had any money. We, we begged, borrow, and stole where, where we had to. Um, there, there was a, two brilliant advertising guys, um, John, John Daniels and his partner. Oh, gosh, I forget his name in a second. I hope I remember. Anyway, they did the advertising for us. They did the advertising campaign for
2: us, pro bono. And it was a fantastic campaign. They, they said to us, look, Black people are not voting,
1: they feel powerless. So we have to grab them by the juggler and we have to also arrest the politicians to our cause. So we had had these giant billboard posters of each of the political leaders. On, On each one, it had their face and it had their telephone number. Underneath their office telephone number and it said, very simple, imagine, if one million black people call up Tony Blair, call up Paddy Ashdown, uh, call up um, John Major and tell him what we think. <laughs> did. <Indeed. laughs> but um, what they wanted to do was have that first political step of engaging, of demanding. And um, I, was, I was very proud of that.
0: Now, bringing it up to today, what does Operation Black Vote do? What are the initiatives it does to fulfil its mission statement? Well, very much what we did back then, actually, is that the
1: mission hasn't changed a whole deal. Yes, we've become a bit more sophisticated, I hope, uh, and we punch harder, higher. But the, the three core elements remain. Number one, political education, understanding how the system works, how we access it, Uh, understanding the levers of power, political participation. You know, in the Operation Black Vote team, we see ourselves as disciples of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King had a dream, we know that, but he also had a plan. Step one of that plan was voter registration. Politics is a numbers game, and we have the numbers. We still don't realise just how powerful we are. When you, when you mobilise the numbers, you're not asking, your demanding, as I said before. And the third element is, is uh, was, will always be representation. We said, back then, as we do today, anywhere there are decisions that affect our lives, we should be around the decision-making table. And when we are, better policies happen, better societal changes occur. People feel inclusive. People feel empowered. We have a society in which, as the phrase goes at the moment, we're all in this together. But we're not unless we're around the table. But on that latter project, for the last 24 years, we've been nurturing talent. So we've been holding MP shadowing schemes, leadership projects, local leadership projects. And you know some of those successes I'm very, very proud of. More than 120 magistrates. These 120 magistrates, when we did these schemes over 10 years ago now, uh, these individuals have given more than a thousand years of public service. On average, each one does 10 years. Transforming uh, our local magistracy, giving people hope that justice will be delivered. Uh, MPs, 10% of all BME MPs are from Operation Black Vote, and about four or five uh, black, uh, black or Asian mayors, such as um, Marvin, Marvin Rees, Anna, Anna Rothery, and, uh, and, and others, you know, in very, very senior positions, Joe Edufold, in senior positions now, actually, you know, running budgets of £500 million plus.
0: Now, over the years, you've worked very closely with successive governments. And um, looking recently at Theresa May's government, you worked very closely with them with the race audit. Would you say politicians have become more engaged with the issues and recommendations that you've raised with them as the years have gone on? Well, I think I've been nearly 25 years uh, of of activism. And, you know,
1: we're non-partisan. That we have a vision of a world, our society free of race inequality, and we we'll work with we'll work with politicians who want to work with us. We'll challenge politicians who don't want to work with with, with us. And um, over the years, people have recognised that on those shared agendas of equality, of justice, of unleashing
2: talent, some politicians get it better than others. Uh, Theresa May was one of those politicians that said, "Look."
1: I can do certain things, and I believe that in other areas you can help me. And in particular, close in those racial disparities. We put that idea to a a race disparity audit, and she said, what's not to like? Uh, And she ran with it, frankly. She said, look, the mantra is, first and foremost, lay bare the uncomfortable truths. The fact that from uh, cradle to grave, There's race penalties in hospitals. Tragically, we're seeing that rolled out at at the moment. Uh, In schools, in housing, in the criminal justice system. Penalties for no other reason than the colour of your skin or the religion that you hold, or sometimes both. And she said, let's lay them bare and have a plan. Explain, Explain these disparities, these gaps, or change through policy. I'm I'm thankful that Boris Johnson hasn't kicked it into the long grass. I think uh, many of his team are data-driven, and the data says, look, these are the gaps. What are you going to do about it? And so, fingers crossed, we can plow ahead because, as we've seen, now more than ever, we need to have a plan to acknowledge the racial disparities. And two, uh, what is the action to
0: close it, close those gaps? Now, do you ever find it challenging when communicating with uh, politicians of all the parties when they're very happy to talk the talk with you but their actions don't necessarily match with what they aim? Brian, I'm always frustrated. I have every right,
1: we have every right to be frustrated because when you see lives lost,
2: when you see talent uh, not elevated, when you see potential, excluded from our
1: education system it makes me angry no other way of putting it and sometimes i get politicians who'll say yes 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 what's not to like uh, and then the implementation the journey from an idea to implementation is like pushing a massive boulder uphill with one hand sometimes but in, you know i think we've learned that And I'm sure you will as a journalist,
2: podcaster, activist. We never give in. It's it's in our DNA. Um, And sometimes we have to
1: pivot. Sometimes we have to uh, reconfigure. But until the job is done, we're not done.
0: Now, you've worked with Reverend Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, and even Naomi Campbell. And my question to you is how do you think these collaborations have helped Operation Black Boat in furthering their message?
2: Mm.
0: Well, these are global leaders, all three of them,
1: icons, and uh, it is an honor, an honor to work with with those and and others as it's been with Theresa May as a matter of fact. I mean, you know, she made mistakes, not grappling with Windrush as it emerged I think she will regret for a very long time, and she has to own that. But um, I think she's a, she's a, a in a in a at heart she's a decent woman, and it was a pleasure establishing the race disparity audit, and seeing how ministers had to respond. You know, working with those icons that that you, as a young scholar, you know, reading about. Jesse Jackson on the balcony with Martin Luther King, keeping hope alive. Presidential candidate twice, easily the best. Sharpton ran for president. I mean, he is the, I think Sharpton's probably the greatest orator that I've ever heard. Even even better than Barack Obama, and that takes some beating. And he's a friend, and we collaborate. We collaborate because, because we're all on a mission. And Naomi Campbell
2: is probably the most famous model in the world. Too often pilloried by a a
1: racist, misogynist press. And yet more often than not now, she dedicates her time, her money, her energy, her, her friends to deliver racial justice, gender equality across the world, particularly in Africa. Her fashion for relief raises hundreds of thousands of pounds on a yearly basis. And so I'm honoured to be working with people like them. I'm actually honoured to be working with someone like you, Brian. I mean, you reached out as a young man and said, look, you know, come and have a conversation. And for me, this process is
2: succession planning. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. So you can't have this seat just yet. But
1: I want you to want this seat. I want you to want a position of power where you can lead, where you can inspire, I mean, you can do that without the seat, as you are, but
2: we, you have to nurture and support a younger generation, men and women, to come forward and own the leadership roles that is their destiny.
0: Now, I want to backtrack on the political blackness um, message we were talking about just a second ago. What is your opinion of political blackness and its effectiveness today?
1: Well, it's as important now as it was back then. And the, if you like, the, the, the colonial divide and rule has been a great detriment to the cause of tackling race inequality. Actually, so it began, I guess, in its high point, it was after 9-11, because after 9-11, people wanted to blame Muslims. And other ethnic groups said, religious groups said, oh, "We're not Muslim. We're not Muslim." And there was this divide in rule And then people would say, "You know, we're not. We're not black. We're Asian. We're." And what it did was, is it diluted that that cause because whether you are Muslim, Sikh, African, Caribbean, Asian, uh, racial discrimination, by and large, is based upon colour of your skin. And. And religion too in, in, in other aspects but people of color so if people of color political black you do one of two things one you still you can still articulate the fact that you might be you might be Nigerian you might be you might be Jamaican you might be Bayesian you might have you know all these different religions so you support all of that but you come together with this one voice to say together we demand race equality and it's been diluted we now have to say black and minority ethnic so we people understand but our core message is for us to be tight together Uh, and in that tightness that we can articulate our kaleidoscope of difference we welcome that Uh, we don't it's not that's not what divides us we, we come together as this great union of, of wonderful people.
0: Now to play devil's advocate on that, um, a concern that I hear from a lot of mainly younger black and brown uh, individuals, is that they say that the political blackness mantra creates a monolith of people that aren't white. So then it frames whiteness as a default. So what would you say to those people? Mm. I would say that in a,
2: in a world of white supremacy, you need a political black pushback. Because, because um, that white supremacist narrative that sadly is all-pervasive. And it's this contract, like a racial contract, is not just for white people but people of color also internalize that um i think probably um kahindri Andrews puts it better than, than than i could but you know one of the things
1: that i often say to people to understand to understand the white supremacist narrative global the global narrative is to ask but one question
2: and that is what is the best what is the best beauty selling product in the world today skin lightening cream that tells us that tells us right there the, the
1: the global narrative of what is good and what is bad
2: and this is I'm not not juxtaposing uh, a, a conflict.
1: What I'm demanding is this white supremacist,
2: by definition, is dismantled, so we're all equal. But unless you name it, it's difficult to do anything about it. And those that are privileged by it don't even know they're
1: privileged. They don't even know that for no other reason than their colour of their skin, they will not be stopped, searched and humiliated at the same rate as we will.
0: Now, I wanted to talk about the recent COVID-19 pandemic that we're in. In the past few weeks, life as we knew it has been radically changed, uh, probably forever. Uh, One thing that's come out of this pandemic is the shocking fact that, Black and minority ethnic individuals have been disproportionately affected by this crisis. And we're seeing that in the death rates. What action could the government and opposition parties take to address this issue? Sure. You know, Well, we're talking about these global disparities, right? Uh, These these entrenched inequalities.
1: And when you have a deadly virus like COVID-19, that those disparities are amplified. When I see that nearly 70% of the medical health workers who have lost their lives, fighting to save lives, are from black and minority ethnic communities. I want to weep, but we all should be deeply, deeply alarmed by that fact. And it's not just the the frontline hospital workers, it's also the care workers uh, in in the care homes, the bus drivers, the shop assistants, those
2: in those in the gig economy that unless they go out to work they don't get paid and
1: black and minority ethnic communities are disproportionately on the front line and in that precarious workspace so when we talk about these race penalties they become tragically amplified during this virus so my first ask to the government is, acknowledge this disparity. Acknowledge the fact that we're dying at a greater rate than other people. So if we're in this together, why is
2: that happening? If you don't acknowledge it, then you can't do anything about it in an effective way. The second point is, and then the doing, then
1: translates to one. Those on the front line must be protected. I don't want anybody, black or white, being on the front line of COVID-19 and not having the proper protection. The second thing is if people are on that front line are, have underlying health elements, their age, diabetes, or anything else, they should be taken away from
2: it.
0: Now, in the past two days, we've seen uh, the government agreed to uh, have an inquiry into this disproportionate amount of death in the Black and Asian communities. And according to a Guardian report, out of, out of 53 NHS staff that they surveyed, 68% of them were banned and had died because of this. So there's clearly an issue there. And they've been mounting pressure from campaigners, from opposition uh, parties to get the government to publish the report that they do. Do you think right. that that report that they publish will reassure BAME communities that the government is actually taking this issue seriously?
1: Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, this is,
2: this is a matter of life and death. And those that are dying then can't save lives. So it's a double whammy.
1: But it's not just those on the direct front line. You have to understand, too, the data also shows that within this... COVID-19 tragedy unfolding. uh, The data shows that black and minority ethnic communities will have a greater impact financially on their income and losing jobs, that's a fact. So present danger, health, but also in the the medium and long term, there will be these race penalties that could take us back a, a generation unless we acknowledge it the other the other point is of course is that with the school with, you know us parents with our kids at school uh, we're worried we're worried if they don't take exams and the teachers have to have to predict the grades because historically when that's been done in the past lo and behold black kids get lower grades when it's blind they get better grades so what is the government's response to mitigate to mitigate the racial penalty that students have, which is their future, future grades to where they will go on in life, that they can be assured that they won't be downgraded because historically that has occurred.
0: Now I want to move on to talking about the recent labor report that was leaked. Um, right. So we had this leaked internal report that showed MPs such as Diane Abbott, Clive Lewis, and Dawn Butler having been targeted by some of the uh, internal members of staff within the party. What was your reaction to this report? Well, my jaw dropped.
2: Um, I was desperately, desperately sad. First, you need to understand this. For many years, the most senior black female politician in the Labour Party
1: has been the most vilified politician by some margin. I mean, if there was like 20,000 abuse, misogynist, racist abuse, Diane Abbott would receive about 70% of all the MPs. I mean, it's shocking, shocking, shocking. So if that isn't bad enough to have
2: that type of abuse come from your own senior, senior colleagues is breathtaking. The Labour Party, in its inquiry, not just to the leak, but
1: in terms of who said what, the black community will not forgive the Labour Party unless they address this full on and those found culpable thrown out of the party. Unequivocal. If you've been found guilty, you're out. It's not acceptable for the most senior, senior black politician, to be vilified in this way, what other black women, what other black women, will follow Diane Abbott's footsteps if they know, as they rise the ladder, this is what they can expect?
0: Now we often hear a lot of um, discussion about racism in the Conservative Party and on the right in general. Do you think this report addresses the need for a dialogue to begin about the racism on the left? Well, we've got to we've got to deal with. We've got to deal with
1: anti-Semitism. we've got to deal with racism, in mean, all the political parties, they're all culpable, frankly. Uh, they all have an infrastructure that, that struggles to one, recognize talent, to, to, to fully recognize the, the people they're seeking to serve. And I don't know, it, listen, this isn't rocket science, that there's, there's 50% of black people still not voting. The first party to recognize that going forward, looking at, the, looking at, looking at um, the numbers, that any political party that want wanting to secure the keys to the dynasty will need to engage with our communities. The first party that does genuinely to have a inclusive representative, at every single level of the party will win the hearts and minds of black people. And Brian, before I forget, I remember the guru's name who did the advertising for us back in 1996. It was Trevor Robinson. So Trevor Robinson and John Daniels. John Daniels sadly passed away. What a dynamic duo They were. Trevor's still doing his advertising, by the way. Trevor Robinson, but what they just they just lit the torch paper for Operation Blackfoot.
0: Now, during your career, you've been showered with many awards and recognitions for your work and your activism. But last year you received two of the highest recognitions in the UK.
1: (laughs) You're trying to embarrass me now, aren't you? You're going to embarrass me now.
0: You received a knighthood and you also became a lord. You became Lord Simon Woolley of Woodford. What did you think when you got the news? Well, let me just say this first of all, that, um, that
1: you, it's really very important to have a vocation, have a mission in life. And I would hope people want to change the world, but you know, Making money is fine, as long as it's not naked, ambition. Uh, And and you can do great things in many, many areas. But I've been brought up by
2: my mother and great colleagues around, uh, including those you mentioned before. Do what you do because you think it's the right thing. And you
1: believe that you can make a difference. Whatever you do, don't do these
2: things for awards because you're doing it for the wrong reason. And so, for 24 years, I had no
1: awards. I mean, it's fine, you know. It, it, Lee Jasper once told me, one of the founders of Operation Black Vote, uh, this is thankless, so don't wait for any thanks. But 24 years later, uh, waiting for, not waiting for those buses, but, but you know, metaphorically waiting for buses, two big ones come. <laughs> and,
2: and the first one was difficult because i personally i couldn't take an honor i couldn't take an honor
1: with the word empire in it and that's a personal decision um and and nobody should be have to wrestle with whether or not they take an honor for their nice work nobody should wrestle with it but many black people do because of the word empire they should take it out order of the british excellence uh Thankfully, the honour mine is a knight thistle, uh, with no mention of empire in. Thank heavens! And the queen got the this archaic sword and didn't chop my hair off and knighted me. Great honour for me and my family. And then some months later, the prime minister said that we'd like to elevate you to the House of Lords as a crossbench peer. It's a great honour, and I hope that it, I hope that I can be a quiet role model. It's no, not, not about me. It's about what I can do. I hope that I can encourage and I can inspire. And above all, above
2: all, Brian, that I can make a difference. Because when you're given roles, when you're given a platform, you're duty-bound. <laughs>
1: you're duty-bound to serve. You're, and in serving, it's, it's a great honour. It's a great feeling that I get up every day thinking, how can I change the world? And I guess, and I would just say, you know, in these closing remarks, that uh, we're at a crossroads right now, because this tra- this tragedy taking lives is awful. But as awful as it is, it gives us the opportunity to rethink our society, the way we do things, who we value, what our priorities should be, leveling the playing field, ensuring that those doing backbreaking work on the front line, the so-called essential workers are properly valued. This gives us that opportunity. It also gives us an opportunity to listen to the birds and to
2: spend time with our family. We must seize these precious potential and and, and run with it.
0: Now yourself and Dame Floella Benjamin, are um, uh, one of the few minority lords in the chamber, And as you addressed, there has been a bit of pushback from especially the Black community with some people rejecting uh, honours that they've been given and rejecting uh, the lordship. Do you think they're justified in rejecting it? Or do you think we need more Black people to enter those established chambers?
1: Mm. They shouldn't have to wrestle with that. They shouldn't have to wrestle with being honoured. We have one system that honours greatness, that honours excellence we're forced to wrestle with it and we shouldn't i'm not making a judgment whether you accept it or not that's personal
2: but everybody that's been offered it deserves to be offered it because of the excellent work that they've done and i'm sorry that 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 like me we have to
1: wrestle with it and unpick it and see because let's be clear about this brian
2: there's nothing good uh, that came out of the empire, nothing. No, the, let me say, the only thing that came, that, that of, of note that came out of the empire is that we survived, and we survived to fight, and we survived to tell the story.
1: But the tenants of the empire that obliterated millions of people, that stole land, the, the, the legacies of such we are still wrestling with today. We have a we have a white supremacist
2: society that deems us less than. Nothing's good from the empire, so why are we in that on a system?
0: Now to finish off, I wanted to end with a round of statements, which I'd like you to complete. So the first one is: the biggest misconception about me is that I can walk on water. I am most proud of.
2: I'm most proud of waking up in the
1: morning and then believing that I can change our world. My biggest
0: regret is
1: My biggest regret is that my my
2: mother who who fostered and adopted me uh, was not alive to see her son be knighted by the Queen and be ennobled as a lord of My advice to today's youth is: be the best you. You know, you know that I've listened to
1: Al Sharpton. He does a morning sermon, but you know every other sermon that Sharpton gives at five o'clock in the morning, it's about the self, and about being focused, and about being brilliant, and about being resilient, and about being making a difference.
2: And you know, in truth, most people are lazy. I mean, you know we we, we we
1: want to cut corners. we you know don't want to finish a book. we don't want to don't do that't you when you wake up feeling, this is the best I can be because I've made it's a wonderful feeling i i I struggle, I wrestle with it. But I strive for it. I think that, I think if your listeners can can wake up in the morning and believe they can do almost anything, I,
0: I I'm down with that. Lord Simon Willey, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Good luck.